This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. A few years back, and I can't give you the number of years, but it's probably even a couple decades. Uh, so it's funny how when you get older, you start saying a few years and it's actually like 20. Uh, but there was a doctrine that began to emerge in the church that started to clarify things for a lot of people. It is not something that I stand with. And so I'm bringing it up not because I'm trying to promote it, but because it stands directly against something I do want to promote. It was called independent intimacy or intimate independence. And if you've never heard of it, that's fine. However, it was more in the intellectual community and of people that love Jesus but are trying to figure out how to make decisions and what involvement God has in those decisions. Very challenging theme for all of us. It's like, okay, do I lay in bed in the morning and since God has taken over my life, do I wait for him to do everything? So if I'm going to get out of bed, it's because God is getting out of bed in my body. And if I'm going to walk to the closet, it's because God wants me to walk to the closet because he doesn't want me to go out in my underwear and to you know, do my work that day. So he's going to clothe me, but I don't choose what I'm going to dress in. He dresses me. And when I walk into the kitchen, I, you know, his hand, you know, which is really my hand, but he's now in me living my life, is going to choose the apple instead of the banana. So there was this tension over this where people are looking at this going, that is absolutely ridiculous, and of course I would agree. However, the extreme came to this fact that God actually doesn't want to decide anything for us. He wants to give us a moral will and sort of wind us up with truth and then send us on our way. And he loves us and he cares for us just as a grandparent or a parent of an older child would care for their child when they're grown. It's an intimate independence. So my mom out in Michigan cares deeply about her son, Eric, and she calls me up and asks me questions about my life. However, she doesn't make my decisions for me. I mean, how awkward would that be? And so it's an intimate independence from my mom. And so what this did is it was brought into the church of Jesus Christ where it's just like, now that is the way God is with us. You see, God uses the imagery of a father. He uses the imagery of a king. This is not me talking. This is the doctrine of uh, intimate independence talking. But if you're a good parent, what are you raising your child to be? Independent. Not dependent upon you when they are 55 years old. Okay, that would be unhealthy. You don't want, as a parent, to be making decisions for your child in their elder years You want to train them to lean on the word of God and to have their own mind and to be able to make wise decisions. And of course, every single one of you in here is going to nod along and go, amen. And a king, if a king is a good king, he doesn't have time to micromanage every person in his kingdom. And so as a result, he's going to give the laws of the land, which are going to be benevolent and kind. And then he's going to say, live life in such a way that honors your king. And oh, that makes so much sense when then you apply it to God the Father and God the King. Because he doesn't actually want to micromanage your life. He doesn't have a specific purpose for your life. He just has a general good purpose for your life. This was the doctrine of intimate independence. It is something that flies directly in the face of what I believe is biblical Christianity. It's a pretty strong statement because a lot of the people that have stood for intimate independence are very astute characters in our Christian world and our best-selling authors. So Eric is sort of like making a statement. You're like, are you serious, Eric? You're going to take on the establishment? If it means you being able to walk out true Christianity, yes. True Christianity is not independent of God. I know it sounds terrible to say that even when we're 55 as a Christian, we're dependent on our Father in heaven. But I want you to look at Jesus as your sampling. Jesus comes to this earth and takes on one of these forms, known as a man. And he is going to model the perfect example of how a man relates to God. 
Nothing that Jesus said was of his own accord, and he was 33 years old. Nothing he did was something he derived or he invented. He did only that which the Father was doing. So yes, in a normal human-to-human relationship of father to son, I, as a father, am going to train my boys to grow up to be independent of me, but dependent on God. There is a significant difference between trying to make God human in this illustration, to say like a human king or like a human father. He is not a human father or a human king. He is God. And he, though we are a shadow representation in my fatherhood, it's a lowercase f fatherhood, I could not possibly take the role of God towards my kids. My job is to be a placeholder and prepare them for the true dependence that they have upon their God. Intimate dependence. It's what I believe is demonstrated, articulated, and clarified throughout the entire New Testament as the pattern for Christianity. That God doesn't just have a moral will for my life. He desires to direct my steps as a shepherd does sheep. He desires to direct my steps the way God the Father directed Christ. He desires to direct my steps the way God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, directed the apostles. And just because I am not in the apostolic generation does not mean I believe that God's leading hand has expired, that suddenly he no longer cares about the intimate aspects of the lives of his people because the scripture text has been completed and now suddenly all of this evaporated. The crux of Christianity is me knowing that God knows me that he cares about every intimate aspect, every movement of my soul, every thought I have, that he cares and loves me, that he desires every moment of my life to be a, a moment of worship, a moment of closeness. It's called the abiding life. And abiding is a very intimate thing. Dependence and intimacy must go together in the kingdom of heaven. So how's that for an introduction to a message? making it personal. Christianity very easily can become an impersonal thing. In the moment it does, it becomes religion. Christianity is not meant to be a religious act, a religious series of rites. It is meant to be a relationship between a father and a child, between a bridegroom and a bride, between a shepherd and his sheep. Every illustration that is used throughout Scripture is one of intimacy and one of dependence and one of deep love and connectedness. So when something begins to enter into Christianity that fragments that or separates that, you're going to see Eric rise up. And I'm going to say, watch out for that. That is attempting to create a version of Christianity which at first is very attractive. Now follow me on this. If I told you God actually doesn't care about all these small decisions you're making, just make decisions with a good heart and a desire to please him, just a desire to follow the moral will of God. I mean, as long as you're not committing adultery, he doesn't care. And to be honest, there's an attraction to that in the human soul which wants to go rogue and wants to have our own agenda. And I would say, if you wanna be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow a very specific person named Jesus. And he has already modeled how he depended wholly and completely upon the Father. So if we're going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, the pattern has already been set. We are not reinventing it in the year 2000. We are following the ancient pattern, which works. It's very real, and it's very dear to me personally. The reason this message is hatching is because I do feel that a fresh push of this for us as a church to remember the intimate desires of our God, to have an intimate relationship with us, is no small matter. Going down into the crowd, the power of making it personal. This is a personal illustration, and... There are certain things that I've discovered in leadership over the years that have actually, I, I don't want to say are shocking, but are profound to my soul. And I have multiple illustrations, so I'll give you one, okay? Because as a leader, I have 
stood in front of tens of thousands of people many times. And there is, an, there is a personal but impersonal, sort of like an intimate independence that you could have as a speaker to an audience. I'll never see him again. It really doesn't matter. All I care about is that they buy my books afterwards. You could have a relationship like that, and it could be very effective for you as a speaker, and it could bless them as an audience. Don't let your audience get too close. Rule number one of being a public communicator, don't let your audience ever come into your home. Don't let them ever really see behind the scenes in your life because that could distort your message. They could actually see that you don't really live out what you teach. Welcome to modern Christianity, guys. This is what we grew up in. I did. There were rules, unspoken rules, in the publishing realm, in the speaking realm, and Leslie and I chose to violate them. To actually push past that to say, if I am speaking something that is not matching with my life, I shouldn't even be speaking it. So when we would arrive at a venue, there's a room called the green room. And now those of you that have been in entertainment or anything like that understand the green room. It's usually not green. By the way, even though you, the mental picture of it is that it's green. Sometimes they do make it green. I think it's part of the humor of it. But it's not always green. It's just a room that is there for the talent. Okay, the important people get to be in the green room. And you have all sorts of special hors d'oeuvres and drinks. It's like, hey, can I get you something? Uh, yes, I, could I have a <laughs> with a little <laughs> and a flare of <laughs> in it? Absolutely, sir. It's really nice being treated like that. The green room. However, everyone else is not in the green room, right? They're the people that have to pay for the talent. Okay, now when this enters into Christianity, you have problems. And because you're creating a celebrity system that is very opposite the kingdom of heaven. Because technically, Jesus took the worst spot even in the crowd. I mean, he, he took the lowest seat. He didn't come in, even though he is the ultimate picture. He's the leader. He is the talent He's the one that is going to demonstrate something. So I remember having this burden. First of all, I, I didn't like the separation, okay? Whatever this gap is, there probably needs to be a, a name for it, of stage to audience. It's just like, I just want to talk with people. I don't like this, like, gap. And so when I would arrive, uh, I would go down into the crowd and start talking with people. Now, no one knew who I was, but I was going up to people and like, hi, how are you doing? What's your name? And they would tell me their name, and I would ask them usually a question. I would go, and I would find as many people as I could, usually like the first two or three rows of a, of a major event. And then I would go back. And when I stepped out onto that stage to speak, there was a palpable impact, even upon walking out for those first three rows, and anyone that was watching from any row behind. And I saw this event after event. And then when I would say the names of the different people that I had talked with beforehand, the impact was so sizable. You could say, how do you know the impact? Because at the end, when I would actually say, if any of you need to be, make something right with God and you want to come forward, all those that I was talking to just populated the front. It was like they took it personal. That message was for them. Now, you try and circle what happened in that situation. It was a personal touch from someone speaking, and they heard it personally, and it sunk deeper than if it was just yeah, them listening to it on a podcast. That's not for them, but it's interesting. It's fascinating. I've watched that throughout my entire ministry. When I, as a speaker, make it personal to someone, it has greater impact. So I'm just giving that as an illustration. What do you think God's agenda is? God's agenda isn't just give general truth and loft it into the air and say, I hope it blesses someone. He wants to give your name and attach it to the scripture and say, do you see this is yours? He wants to hand deliver it or spirit deliver it to you so that you could awaken, you could ignite and know that God loves you. He doesn't just love, he loves you. And there's so many of you in here that have struggled with the personalization of Christianity. You know the person next to you, he, God loves them. Isn't that funny? You know God forgives them. In fact, have you ever been in one of those counseling situations like God can forgive that? And then they could look back at you and say, yeah, and he can forgive you too. You're like, oh, I don't know about that. We have a tendency to know the truth, believe the truth, understand that God is great, he is able, but it's not for you. 
Christianity must be for you. The truth of the kingdom of heaven is yours. And the Spirit of God is very interested in communicating that to you. A very personal God. He's a bridegroom. I think that ranks as the most personable description God could ever come up with. Father is right up there, okay? However, a bridegroom, that is a decision of willful choice to separate out your life, to say no to all other things, and to say, I choose you. It is a very beautiful thing, and it is very intimate. It is very close, and that is the entirety of Scripture. You're going to see the, the picture of the bride and the bridegroom all the way from Adam and Eve to Revelation. That is the picture. That it's a love story. God is communicating something to us, and we better not miss it. To make God intimately independent of us is to miss the very essence. Could you imagine having an intimate, independent uh, marriage relationship? Not a very effective marriage relationship, mind you, if it was that, that way. He's a shepherd. A shepherd is close. A shepherd is intimately acquainted with his sheep. He's intimately acquainted with their potential to diverge from the path and to go off, and he's also very uh, affectionate towards them. He has special names for them. He spends time with them in a way that is undue, where he's away from everyone else, everything else, and he experiences all the difficulty with them. When it rains, he's with them. When they're sleeping in a cave, he's with them. A shepherd is a very intimate role, even though it's a very degraded role when you were to think about it. In any culture before, it's like, oh, the shepherd, that is lowly. And yet God says, and I'm a shepherd because I take care of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep know my voice. I will be behind my sheep, and when they go to the right, I will tell them. When they go to the left, I will tell them. That is an intimate role. He's a father. He's a friend. He's a counselor, a comforter, a keeper. Sounds like a song. For God so loved that he gave. Now, you know the rest of that statement, but just ponder that. For God so loved who? You. That he gave everything. That is an extraordinary statement of intimacy. An extraordinary statement of love and pursuit and desire. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, says Jesus. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If any of you have ever spent any time or allowed yourself any time to just linger near that scripture, it's a bit haunting, and I think it's supposed to be. It's supposed to awaken our souls to say, Lord, do I know you? Lord, what sort of relationship do you have with the King of Kings? Do you have an external relationship where you, you know, dot all the I's doctrinally and cross all the T's theologically? Where she's like, oh, yeah, I, I know God's there, yeah, and he's a, he's a good God, he's a loving God, he's a truth-based God, he's holy, 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 absolutely, we got all that down. But do you know him? Does he know you? You see, you can know facts and data about things. I could know facts and data about Leslie. I could tell you heights. I could tell you hair color. I could tell you eye color. I could tell you what, when her birthday was. I could tell you what city she was born in. I could pass the quiz test, the Leslie quiz test, and I could get a little you know, a medal you know, for being so smart about Leslie. And yet, I could have no relationship with Leslie. There's a difference between knowing data and facts and knowing someone. And God says, I'm not interested in you just knowing data and facts. It's not that he's against you knowing data about him. It's not that that's harmful for me to know where Leslie was born. It's just it does not in and of itself equate to a relationship. It doesn't equate to intimacy. It doesn't equate to the knowing that God intends me to have with her. Life lesson. Make it personal when you speak. So for me... One of the things I've recognized in public speaking, years of doing it, is that it is far more effective when it is personal to you. Easier said than done. The smaller the group, the easier it is. The bigger the group, the harder that is. 
But if you can actually bring your audience into it, even mention their name every now and then. If, if your name has ever been mentioned in one of my messages, you know what it does to you. It's like it startles you and suddenly you're very, you have adrenaline flushing through your body. It's a weird sensation, right? Very effective for the speaker though too. If someone's starting to fall asleep, just mention their name. It has an amazing wake-up quality to it. But when a speaker makes it personal to a recipient or a hearer, it is more effective. It's a life lesson. Here's another life lesson. Make it, make it personal when you lead. Leadership could very easily be leader blob that you're leading. You know, it's just like just a nameless blob. One of the challenges, especially as congregations get bigger, it becomes more and more impersonal. I don't know if God ever intended congregations to just be massive. You know, I, know I'm not, I don't think he's against church growth, but I do think that he intends it to have a personal touch to it because that's what the essence of Christianity is. If we just have megachurch Christianity where you're just sitting in a pew and no one has a clue about you, no one has a thought you know, of what, how to even pursue more knowledge about you, that is not necessarily conducive to growth in Christ because Christ is very personal and he touches us in and through the personal dimension of even the church of Jesus Christ. Life lesson, make it personal when you read. Isn't that an odd statement? So when I read the scriptures, or when I'm going to encourage you to read the scriptures, I want you to recognize that the Spirit of God who carried along the writers to write those words is the very one that dwells in you. And he wants to take that scripture, lift it off of the page, and apply it to your life. And so when you read, you need to read it with the aid of the Holy Spirit with the expectation that the Holy Spirit desires to take that word and convict you, exhort you, lift your chin up to see heaven. That's the way we interact with the text of Scripture. So when you read, it is meant to be personal. This is not something that you're just supposed to memorize and understand in a theoretical sense. You're not supposed to be a hearer of the word, but a doer. To be a doer, you must know that this applies to you. And you're supposed to take this body, stand up, and do something with it. Like, guys, I have a lot of life lessons this morning. Life lesson. Make it personal when you pray. One of the things I've, I, I said to uh, the alumni on a call a couple weeks ago is I said, the text of Scripture is one of the chief weapons we have to it's like a sword and it's sharp and it's it's very effective in its delivery just like jesus in the wilderness when the uh when the devil was tempting him and jesus is going to say it is written and we're like wow that was effective and yet most of us struggle with taking the scripture and utilizing it actually in an advance or an offensive way and one of the things i said was Imagine that it was like a weapon, okay? To use a gun just sounds pretty extreme, but it's like a weapon against the spiritual powers, okay? And if you have the weapon, but you don't have it loaded, then it's not going to be very effective. It, it's a weapon, all right, and yes, you're holding it correctly. Oh, everything looks good except for it's not loaded. How do you load the weaponry that you've been given, the weapons of your warfare which are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds? I'm going to give it to you guys. You ready for this? How you load that weaponry is you make it personal. So as I'm teaching my kids, for instance, the issue of greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. That could be fact to you. It could be good data to you. You need to put, you need to load it up. How do you load it up? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. You see the difference? Instead of greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world, is greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. If God be for me, who can stand against me? No weapon fashioned against me shall prosper. When the enemy comes in like a flood against me, God will raise up a standard against him. This is truth that is yours. And if you're going to be effective in the kingdom of heaven, you must adopt it as your weaponry, not just general weaponry that's sitting in a closet somewhere in the armory of heaven. You must take it off the shelf and you must load it with the personalization, this belongs to me. This is to fight my battles. This is to fight on behalf of those around me. The enemy has nothing on you. 
when you know the personalization of these truths. Knowing facts, but not knowing him. Someone can know the truth. You notice that that's a small no, because you can know all sorts of things. But knowing the way God intends us to know, I put it as big and capital, and not really, so someone can know the truth and not really know the truth. Have you ever had it in your life where one day you just awaken and you realize that you've been pretty dumb and the way that you've been living hasn't made a lot of sense, and, but you've been meaning well, but something is just exposed. It's one of those aha moments in your life and you're starting to really know the truth. It's because God is personalizing something to you because he loves you. He cares about you, and he can't just allow you to continue to wander in the way you have. So I'm going to use the illustration of the parting of the Red Sea. So in the parting of the Red Sea, we have two sides, where water is literally going to stand up like a wall on both sides. It's a really remarkable story. And then there's dry land, uh, I mean, which is a remarkable statement altogether. Dry? Uh, that, how does that happen, Right? So you have a wall of water on your right, you have a wall of water on your left, both miracles. And yet what is truly the path is not to the right or to the left, it's down the middle, the narrow way. So the left side of the Red Sea, vulnerability, emotion-led and lacking discernment, subjective and vulnerable to deception. When we start talking about the issues, we've been going through a series on spiritual gifts, and one of the reasons why many people will push away the idea of spiritual gifts is because they've seen the misuse of it in Scripture. And they see sort of the wild-eyed, wacko uh, Christian. They're like, whoa, I don't want to go there. And it really is a vulnerability. I'm going to call it the left side. Your goal is to not hang out in the water, in the wall, on the left side of the Red Sea. There's a miracle there, but it's not so that you can dive into it and you try and catch fish you know, off to the left. You're supposed to stay on the narrow However, there is a pull to the left, and I'm going to call it uh, sort of this emotion-led uh, side, which is usually you know, what we're going to call charismatic, Pentecostal, or those that, which aren't bad terms in and of themselves, but they can, be a, they can become something that pulls us like a vortex into one side of this Red Sea. So the vulnerability is emotion-led and lacking discernment, subjective and vulnerable to deception. Now, if any of you have hung out on this side, you could probably acknowledge that. You see, it's far less scripture-based as it is how do you feel? What do you sense God is saying to you? And so you're learning to cultivate your senses and how you hear and how you feel, and you don't always have the guard or the lead of scripture. So the strength is expectation of God working, which by the way, is a very real strength. There's a whole classification of Christians today that have zero expectation of God doing anything. Again, if God has just sort of mapped out a general will for us and says, yeah, go and live your best, well, then why would you expect God to intervene in your day? Why would he expect you to stop your hand from grabbing the apple and tell you to go with the banana? You wouldn't, because God doesn't care about stuff like that. And so the strength to the left side of the Red Sea is that they actually have an expectation of God working. And their chief power, the Holy Spirit. Now, for those of you that lean to the right side of the Red Sea, you're going to be like clucking your tongue going, aha, uh -huh, they're one of those. And yet there is a strength. It's just, it's, it's a miracle. It's truly a power, but it's not meant to lead you into that to catch fish. It is meant to actually help you walk a narrow way. So the right side of the Red Sea, uh, vulnerable, the vulnerability is heady intellectualism, religiosity, and spiritual pride. Oh, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit around here. We're smarter than that. We have uh, entered into a new season of church history called, you know, where the Holy Spirit no longer has the sway and he doesn't have to give us gifts because we have the text of Scripture. And so uh, you have something that is taking place here that is far more sane Right? In fact, it has a tendency to overemphasize the mind to the point where expectation of God working is completely evaporated. What is their strength? Knowledge of the Scripture. Their chief power, the Holy Scriptures. And this is one tough gang. And what we have is a split in the body of Christ. Meanwhile, what I would like us to focus on is the narrow way that cuts right through the middle 
that is able to have one hand on the left and one hand on the right. You see, if you actually go one way or the other, you, you mess up Christianity. Christianity is distorted. Christianity does not function as it ought to function. And many of you have been raised in one side of that Red Sea or the other, and you've struggled and you have an attraction to the other side thinking that a retaliation against this side would probably make the most sense. A.W. Tozer's famous statement is, many Christians back into their belief system. You've been hanging out on the left side, so you back into the right side, thinking that that would be more sensible and stable. So the narrow way through, vulnerability. I know some of you are going to doubt this one. None. God didn't create a way with vulnerability. He created a way that was fortified. The vulnerability is in our propensity to go right or left. The vulnerability isn't in God's way. The strength is sensitive to the Spirit and discerning with the Scriptures. You're testing everything against the Scriptures. So if anything says this is the Spirit of God, it's like, oh, well, let me check that out in the Bible. It has a hand on the right and a hand on the left. It is not going after fish in either the right side or the left side. It is walking on the path that God has assigned. The chief power is the Holy Spirit plus the Holy Scriptures. You parse out and you separate out those two and you have made for a dysfunctional Christian living. The parting of the Red Sea, two sides of the miracle, one path down the middle. What I'm interested is the path that has that hand on the Holy Spirit and says, I am dependent upon the Holy Spirit and has a hand on the scriptures and says, and without the Holy Scriptures, I can't even discern what the Holy Spirit is saying. The only way we can recognize the Holy Spirit is he will never contradict the text. He's the one that carried along the writers to write it. He's the one that desires to lead you to the other side. He's on your team. He's not against the Holy Scriptures. He's for them. And so when you understand these two miracles that we've been given and you walk down that narrow way, you will reach the other side. And Pharaoh's armies and that enslavement that you've lived under will no longer have rulership over your life. There is a way through, but you need to heed both and and walk that narrow way instead of start searching for fish on either side. Christianity, it's a miracle when it works and it only works when this spirit scripture balance is pursued and discovered. Christianity, it's very personal. Discipleship, that's what we do here. Now, if you happen to be visiting today, this is not when our students are in town. It is fun to be here when all of our students are here. But discipleship is not an impersonal thing. It's a personal thing. The first thing our team does is learn, the peop- learn every student's name, first day. That is our goal. We want to personalize what we are teaching, that they hear it as if it's their truth and not just a general truth for, for everyone, even though it is. It's a general truth for everyone, but it must be personalized. Discipleship. So often the believer needs to have their name injected into the text. So I am up here and I'm giving a session, say at Ellerslie, and it's a powerful message. Let's just use our imagination. It's a powerful message. And there's about 80 to 85% of the group that can sit in that seat that you're in and be changed by the message just in that context. But then there's gonna be another percentage that are really struggling and they're watching people next to them like, get it. And they're like, oh, wow, that is amazing. And then they're like, why is it that I can't seem to grasp this? And what that person oftentimes needs is personal attention. Where you sit them down and you go through the same scriptures, by the way, that were just spoken, but you put their name in it. It's it's a marvel how that works. When you personalize those truths instead of just have a general package. I'm a guy who was discipled with general packages. I read books. And I would hear general statements, and I was like, God, I want that so much. And I believed it. So I could probably sit in the crowd and hear it and be one of those 80%, 85% that was just like, I get it. I don't know why that is. It's sort of like the guy that in Capernaum where he couldn't walk to Jesus to get healed. Everyone else you know, with a withered arm could come, even blindness, they could sort of feel their way uh, to the house where Jesus was in Capernaum. But this poor guy over here has paralyzed legs. I mean, out of all the ailments to have, he, no matter how much he wants to come, he can't come. So what does he need? He needs a personal touch. He needs four to actually pick him up and carry him. 
And then that's the one they break through the roof and drop him down. We don't want to be the guy with the paralyzed legs. I don't know about you, but all of us want to avoid that, right? Don't draw any more attention to me. However, to the degree that you need to get to Jesus, I say, even if you need to be carried, you say, absolutely. I just want to get to the feet of Jesus. So two words that I don't know if you're familiar with these. If you've been lingering around here, you probably have heard these words before. Logos, in the English, we typically say logos, but you know, if you want to sound you know, more Greek, it's logos. And then we have rema. And if you've hung out in the charismatic side of things, rema is sort of somewhat of a common word, which can cause some of us in here to go, mm, I don't really want to use that word. It's just a Greek word, and the Holy Spirit carried along the writers of the New Testament to write it. It's a safe word, right? However, you'll have people that will say, you know, I have a rhema word for you. And, th- and then you're like, oh, well, what's, what's that? And it just sounds weird, right? And so this word has sort of been tainted a bit. It has some barnacles on it. And I'd love to just knock them off today because this is a critical concept in Scripture. You see, if you know these two are both translated in the New Testament as word, now that's not a small word in the New Testament. Because Jesus became, is the word of God made flesh. In the beginning was the word, that's logos. And this logos created all things. And then he became flesh and dwelt among us, this logos. And so that's the revelation of Jesus in and of itself. But there's this other word that is used in the Greek called rhema. So let's dig a little deeper into that. Here's one of the uses of rhema. Luke 1.38. So an angel of the Lord comes to Mary. And basically says, hey, God would like access to your womb so that the, uh, the Messiah could be born in and through you. That's a pretty big, momentous moment in history. And Mary said, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy rhema. Okay, so there's this word that is brought to Mary. Now, I want us to test that word. I want to take the entire Old Testament And I want to see is what Mary is hearing, is it general like the Logos? The Logos is generally applied to all of us. It's the same for all of us. It doesn't change for one of you and alter to the next. It's the same always, yesterday, today, and forever. It's the revelation of Christ in and of itself. The rhema demonstrates his personal touch. The fact that he will take that general word, that revelation, and bring it to you in a very specific way because he knows your unique role. So Mary has been given a rhema, which means it must match with the text of Scripture. It cannot contradict the logos, the grand revelation that is the same for all. And I would say it perfectly matches what has been talked about all that Old Testament, but that a virgin will conceive and have a baby. He will be born in Bethlehem. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. If you test what she is hearing here, it matches the logos, and yet not every one of us is receiving the same rhema. Wouldn't that be weird if all of us are supposed to be pregnant with the baby Jesus? That's not what it says in Scripture. However, she was supposed to be, and it does not contradict the logos. The rhema is the personalization of the logos to each of us. The logos... What does it say? It says the Messiah will come to save. Now let's look at the rhema in regards to Mary's life. The Messiah will be in your very womb. Well, that's a personal touch if I've ever heard it. 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Don't you think Paul is a little presumptuous to claim the gospel as his own? It's like, excuse me, Paul. Uh, but that isn't just your gospel, that is my gospel. And yet, for you, you need to be saying the same thing. It is all of our gospel, it's logos. And yet that logos gospel must become a rhema gospel to your soul. It must become your gospel. Paul is declaring that it's his gospel. One of the ways it says it in the NIV, which is the way I grew up with it, is this is my gospel. I still like that, that statement. This is my gospel. And we're like, hey, that's my gospel, not your gospel. Give it back. And yet it's our gospel, but it needs to be personalized. You need to also be barking about the fact that this is yours. Have you ever memorized a scripture? You know, like your parents growing up or you're in some Bible quiz team and you have this scripture and then some pastor gets up 
and probably even misquotes it, right? And you're listening going, that's not actually how it's said. Uh, he, he just sort of butchered that line there. And you're actually protective of it. And what do you feel like? You feel like someone is trying to take and use your scripture. You ever felt like it's your scripture? It's like, hey, that's my scripture. You're not allowed to use it like that, especially misuse it like that. You see, that's because the Spirit of God is taking something and making it yours. You spend time with it. You observe it. You study it. Like every one of us knows, and we've, I, we always joke about the fact that Philip and I can't really preach on Ephesians in here, and if we do preach on Ephesians, we need to cloak it like we're just referencing Ephesians, because Nathan has claimed Ephesians as his own. Every time he preaches in here, he preaches on Ephesians. Yeah, and he... <laughs> And that's part, there's humor in that, but there's also a truth in that. Nathan is very familiar. How many years have you been studying Ephesians? A lot. <laughs> How many messages do you have on Ephesians? Do you have that number? A hundred just through chapter three. Okay, that's a lot of time spent intimately sharing his life with God's word in one very specific subsection of scripture. And as a result, if it gets misquoted, Nathan knows it, which is why it's intimidating for us to ever you know, talk about Ephesians. It's like Nathan just knows more than us on Ephesians. And so we just want to say, okay, I'm not going to say what I'm about to say. I'm just going to have Nathan come up and he can say it instead. But that is actually part of both the humor and the beauty of how God's kingdom works, is that in a strange sense, we stake claim to the text of Scripture. And we're like, that's my Scripture. And then someone else is like, well, I'd like it too. And it's not like you can hold them back from having that scripture. It's just that it's very intimate to you. It's very precious to you. This is my gospel. This is my scripture. The logos. So when we talk about the logos or the word of God in text, the scripture is how we would typically re reference that, is Jesus revealed to all. The same for all. There is no distinction. It doesn't matter it, what nationality you are, what skin color you are. It doesn't matter if you're a male or female. It doesn't make any difference. It's the same for all of us. It's the same scripture. The rhema is Jesus revealed to you, uniquely personal. It will never contradict the logos. God will never personalize something to you that actually does not walk in sync with the word of God. We had someone, uh, this is quite a few years ago, that uh, felt that the Spirit of God had led them to date a married man. I know this is going to sound shocking to you, but I said, that is not the Spirit of God. And you could say, Eric, how dare you? Don't you realize that someone should be able to subjectively be able to determine for themselves what the Spirit of God is saying? And I would say, I'm not saying that they can't conclude something, I'm saying that doesn't make them right. I, as an outside observer, especially as a pastor in this situation, am required to uphold that person to the text of Scripture and to test what they are saying for their edification and for their preservation and protection. And the only way we can, otherwise Christianity becomes very subjective or very impersonal. You choose. Subjective or impersonal, or how about we blend the two? Where, yes, there is a personal leading, but it never violates the text. It's a narrow way through the Red Sea miracle. Have you ever felt like you owned the scriptures? I remember this one illustration. I went to Quebec, Canada. I didn't even know Quebec, Canada existed. And my uncle took me up there and they spoke French and we had some cheese that smelled really bad in a fondue restaurant. And uh, I suddenly understood some of the phraseology I had grown up around, you know, with the cheese thing. And, you know, I, I felt very uh, refined uh, as as I wore a suit, I did, I had a tie, a suit, and I sat in a French restaurants, and we, we were in some highbrow hotel. And then I come back, you know, to the lowly people, uh, back in Colorado to, uh, I think I was in high school. I was like 13 or 14, so maybe I was in junior high. And some teacher gets up and is talking about the history, you know, of uh, the American Revolution, and it starts, it mentions Quebec, that's what they said, Quebec, and I'm sitting there in my chair, and I wanted to raise my hand and say, you have no idea what you're talking about. Quebec is my, or Quebec is my place, right? And it's, it's interesting because you can be arrogant because of your knowledge, too. And that's one of the things that happens if you just hang out on the right side, and you start owning these things as your knowledge base, 
but you don't have the Spirit. You actually can become prideful and arrogant like you have it all figured out and that person's just wrong. You know, I've walked the cobblestone streets of Quebec. Have you? (laughs) Didn't think so. And the same thing can be true if you don't handle the knowledge of Scripture with the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is love. The Spirit is humility. The Spirit is joy and peace. And the fruit that he bears is not just doctrinal understanding. The fruit that he bears is behavioral fruit that offsets the danger of the knowledge. If you go one direction or the other, you either get kooky or dead. And we're not interested in either. We're interested in real Christianity. Jesus Christ. Hey, I know him. The way that I want you, just like Paul saying, this is my gospel. It's like, this is my savior. Until Christianity becomes that for you, it's not really a living Christianity. This is my savior. Paul says, this is my gospel. And I say, yeah, you're right. This is my gospel too. And that's my savior. That's my Lord. That's my master. That's my bridegroom. That's my father. It must be yours. If it's not yours and there's a detachedness, I want you to pursue that with every fiber of your being. So we're going to finish with this scripture. Now this is how the scripture is actually written. And in the next one, I'm going to flip the bottom paragraph with the top one. So we're going to see an intimate picture of Jesus. The next paragraph, we're going to see this massive picture. A revelation of the Son of God in the Old Testament. He will flee, this is Isaiah 40, 11 through 12. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And then it's this strange whiplash experience that we experience here in Isaiah 40 where suddenly we go from small and intimate to massive. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the one we just talked about. Now here's what I feel really is helpful, and this is how we're going to finish. I'm going to switch the flow, and I'm going to ask the question in Isaiah 40 first. And then I'm going to answer that question in a shocking way, which is actually what the scriptures say. But for whatever reason, we have a tendency to miss it. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? It's him. Well, who? It's your Savior. The very one who is calling you his own. The very one who shed his blood for you. And he will feed you, his flock, like a shepherd. He will gather you, his lamb, with his arm, and carry you in his bosom, and will gently lead you in your young development as a believer. This is the nature of our God. He is massive. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And I don't know if you've ever heard me teach on the expanse of the universe. But when the nearest major galaxy, not minor galaxy or dwarf galaxy, next major galaxy is a million light years away. Moving at the speed of light, it would take you a million years. Adam, if he'd gotten into some time capsule or some space capsule and had been traveling at the speed of light, since the beginning of creation, he would be 6,000 years in of a million-year journey at the speed of light, and that's the next major galaxy, and it's estimated that there are 200 billion galaxies. Our God encompasses all of that, and yet he sees you has time for you, has delight in you, and is willing to come to this earth and shed his blood to procure you and to redeem you and to set you free. We are so itty-bitty in this whole schematic. And yet, what is he saying? I love you. You see, you might not think of yourself as having a lot of value, but the God who possesses the entire universe has set value on you by giving up his life for you. So what are you worth? Technically, on paper, you're worth the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the creator of the heavens and earth. You are of immense value. And God wants to let you know that. 
And he wants to let you know that this gospel is yours. And he's not going to stop until, like Paul, you say, this is my gospel. This is my Savior. This is my Lord. This is my Father. This is my bridegroom. This is my friend. This is my shepherd. When it's personal for you, the game changes. This is what causes Christianity to get lift off, to start flapping its wings and truly go somewhere in your life instead of just roaming around in your head with good doctrine. Hand on the right, hand on the left, walk the narrow way. This is a miracle, it is. He is part of the Red Sea. He has made a way through the waters. But let's remember both sides of this, that when together lead to life. Father, I pray that you would work this miracle in us and that we would walk that narrow way, cherishing your Holy Spirit and cherishing the word of God in text. Not as combatants, but as friends, as teammates. Lord, I pray that the majesty of our king would be realized in this generation. Please, Lord, fill us with your spirit. Lead us by your spirit. Enable us and empower us by your spirit to know you and to make you known. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.